Go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to uh, Acts chapter 9. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to just share with you about uh, several months ago, there was a, a documentary released uh, on the life of Michael Jordan, and it was called The Last Dance. And uh, it's a really good, uh, really good documentary if you, if you like basketball. Uh, so I would encourage you, to, encourage you to invest the time to watch it. So, so what The Last Dance did is it revived this ongoing debate that happens uh, in sports circles about who the greatest basketball star uh, in, in history is. And so some people say it's Michael Jordan and uh, other people say it is LeBron James. And uh, what's interesting is if you've grown up in the 90s, you would probably say that, uh, of course, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player uh, in human history. Now, however, if you grew up in the 2000s uh, watching LeBron James and you had any sanity at all, you would probably say Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball in human history. So uh, uh, anyway, now what's interesting about, about those two guys is the fact that Nike sponsored both of them. And uh, when LeBron was playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers, there was a huge like nine-story banner that hung downtown Cleveland. And uh, it's a picture of LeBron, and you can see it behind me. Uh, we are all witnesses, right? That's what, that's what uh, Nike was saying, that we are all witnesses. If you've seen LeBron play, you are a witness uh, to the glory of the basketball prowess of LeBron James. And so we've if you've seen him play, you can testify, if you will, that he is the greatest. Now, here's, here's what Scripture says. Scripture says that we're really not witnesses of LeBron's glory, but Scripture calls us and tells us that we are witnesses to the glory of God, to the greatness and the glory of God. So if you are a Christian, if you have, have had an encounter of the grace of God in your life, you are now a witness to uh, the greatness and the grace of God. And a great way to witness to the greatness of God is by simply sharing your story of how you, how you came to know the grace of God in your life. And just simply sharing how God has worked in your life is a great way to witness to it. So we are in week two of a series that we are calling This Is My Story. And, and so what we are doing is in this series, we're looking at uh, the stories of different men and women who experienced the grace of the gospel in a life-transforming way, that their lives were turned upside down uh, by this encounter of the grace of God in their life. And so today we're going to look at probably the greatest conversion story uh, in, in all of Scripture, in my opinion. And it's the story of Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read verses 1 through 19, and I'm going to invite you, uh, like I always do, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read the Word of God together. And so Luke records this. He says, he says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. 
but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on his name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the kings, before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, and the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word for God's people. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now, what we see in this passage really is is Luke is describing the conversion of Saul. He is is describing not only just the conversion of Saul, he is describing the commissioning of Saul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what we have uh, recorded here in Acts chapter 9. Now, this... You have to admit, this is a pretty incredible story. When you, when you really think about this, uh, when you think about how dramatic this is, how powerful this is, uh, this is very, very different from all of our stories. I, I, would, I would probably place money uh, in bet on that. Uh, my guess is in your story of how you came to Christ, you probably didn't hear an audible voice of God. Uh, you probably didn't see a vision of Jesus in blinding lights. And you probably weren't blind for three days uh, following that. And so what we see is that this is a a special revelation from God to the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul, which his name will be changed later on to Paul, uh, this is a special revelation to him because he has a special role to play in God's plan of redemption. And that special role involves a special amount of suffering that that he will encounter throughout his life that we know he embraces freely and completely. So this story is dramatically different from all of our stories. I'm just betting on that. But what's interesting about this story is there are also several characteristics that really, that really describe all of our stories of how we came to faith in Christ. And that's what I want us to highlight today. I, I think what we see in the passage are four signs that God is working in your heart. We see four signs that God is converting you. That God is doing something amazing in you. And I want to highlight those four signs for you today. Sign number one. Let me just kind of run through them and then we'll, 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 we'll dive into each one. Sign number one. You begin to realize God pursues you. 
Sign number two, you realize that God opens your eyes. Number three, you experience the fact that it is God who saves you. And then number four, it's God who commissions you. So I want to look at those four. Now, as you think about your story, you could easily use these four as the template for you sharing your story. Because this is common in every single one of our stories. All right, so let's look at the first one. Sign number one, God pursues us. I, I think what happens to a person when they, are, when they encounter the grace of God for the first time, the saving grace of God, they begin to have their eyes open to the reality that God has been pursuing them all along. They begin to see and look back over their life. And obviously, the older you are at, at this moment of salvation, the easier it is for you to recognize this. But I think but I think the characteristic is there, that we begin to see that God has been pursuing us our entire lives. That he's been trying to get our attention. And he's been trying to work in our lives. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Now, let me show you Acts chapter 3, or 8, verse 3. We didn't read this earlier, but I just want to show you how Luke describes uh, the, uh, what Saul is doing to the church. It's an interesting phrase that he uses. But Saul was ravaging the church. All right, that's, that's Acts 8.3. He's ravaging the church. In other words, he's wreaking havoc on the church. He is literally trying to eradicate the church completely from the planet. And then you go down to verse 9 or chapter 9, verse 1, and you notice how Luke describes it. He, he kind of picks up on this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters, that is permission, uh, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anybody professing Christ, belonging to the ways, which is what they called the church back then, men and women, it didn't matter, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's the picture, church. This is what Saul is doing. This is his activity, running away from God. He is ravaging he is breathing threats of breathing threats of murder and and uh, and you know accusations. He is he is pursuing Christians. He is binding Christians and he is incarcerating them back in Jerusalem. And then in verse three, you absolutely see the sovereign hand of God say, "Enough is enough with this." Look at what it says in verse three. Luke records this. He says, "Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly." A light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, something is happening to Saul on the road to Damascus, and Saul is where he's completely aware of it. He knows something is happening to him. He realizes that something is happening in him. He realizes that he is not in control. That there is a someone, capital S, in control, and Saul is not. What is, what is also interesting that Saul notices is that this encounter, this encounter with this someone is intensely personal. Because this someone knows his name and calls his name twice for, in, for emphasis. So it's just fascinating to me. That, that Saul is the most religious man in all of Israel, and he doesn't know Jesus, but Jesus knows him. Isn't that fascinating? He says, who are you, Lord? 
Because I don't know who you are. And I don't know what you're doing. Jesus knows his name. And here's the thing, church. He knows your name as well. He really does. Notice what Jesus says to him. He asks him, why are you persecuting me? Now, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting them? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He he doesn't say, uh, why are you persecuting it? He asked the question, why are you persecuting me? And the thought is, is that Jesus doesn't think of the church as it. He doesn't think of a church as a building. He thinks of the church as me. And what that means is he is so united himself to the church that Jesus and the church are one and the same. That's what he's saying here. That if you, if you go after my church, you're going after me. That's what he's saying. Now, church, the implication for this is absolutely huge because what this means is this, that there is absolutely no separation between our love for Jesus and the love for the church. There's no separation. And you, you can't say, man, I just love Jesus, but I don't like his church. You can't say that because they are one and the same. And so, and so what Jesus is talking about is he is so united and at one with the church is that anything that happens to the church happens to Jesus. That's amazing. Now, people will say this to me a lot as a pastor. They'll say, well, you know, I just love the church, but may, I mean, I love Jesus, but I just don't like the church. And, and they'll say, well, you know, the church is just so full of hypocrites. And I'll say, come on, man, we got room for one more. Join us. You know what I mean? Um, and it's just interesting to me that that if Jesus hasn't given up on us, that other people have. I think that's interesting. And so practically what this means for you and for me is to love Jesus means that you are an active part of the body of Christ, that you are a contributing part. You are a loving part of the body of Christ. You cannot say, I love Jesus, but I'm not committed to the church. You just can't say it. Now, here's the question. How do we see God pursuing Saul? Well, I think we see it in Acts 26, 14. Because what happens is Saul gives a retelling of this story, not only in Acts 22, but he gives it in Acts 26, 14. Let me show it to you. Let me show you what he says. And, and so this is, this is Saul explaining this. And it says this, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he adds this little bit of information that we didn't get in Acts 9. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we look at that and we're like, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to kick against the goads? First of all, what is a goad? A goad is really a stick. It's kind of like a cattle prod, basically. And what they would do is they would take this stick and had you know, sharp ends to it, and they would, they would poke an oxen or a mule if it was pulling a plow or pulling a wagon, they would poke that oxen or, or mule to pull a little bit faster to get going. And the mule or the, the oxen wouldn't like it. And so the mule would kick back. And that is called kicking against the goats. And so what Jesus is saying here is the Holy Spirit has been working in Paul's life to convict him and to prick his conscience. 
of his wrongdoing, his hatred and his anger and his murder and his breathing these threats and ravaging the church, that the, the Spirit of God has been convicting and Paul has been kicking against the Holy Spirit. He has literally been resisting the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you say, well, how do we know that this is happening? Well, we don't know Saul's heart, but I think we can deduce from the stoning of Stephen in an earlier uh, section of Acts that Stephen is getting stoned for preaching the gospel and Saul watched and approved the whole thing. And he watched how Stephen was dying. And in the midst of dying, Stephen is interceding. He's praying for the people that are killing him. The Holy Spirit is so evident in Stephen's life. Saul had to recognize that and had to be convicted in his heart. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the Holy Spirit has been goading him and prodding him and working on him, but he's been resisting. And maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit has been goading you. He's been, he's been convicting you. And you might say, well, Scott, how does he, how does he do that? He, he can do it in a number of ways. It could be that somebody you work with or somebody you go to school with is just going through a, a terrible trial, but they have so much joy and faith in the midst of that trial. And you're blown away at the grace that you see in them in the midst of their trial. And, and but yet you still resist God's working in your life even as you see signs of grace in another's life. It could be that anytime you come to church, you, you, you come to church because somebody's making you come to church and you don't really, really, really want to be in church. But every time you come to church, you sense the, this, the presence and the power of God pressing in on you. And you're resisting it. You're kicking against the goads. You know, sometimes, many times, the goads are quite painful. Uh, God arranges circumstances to prod us and to convict us through very painful circumstances, and we often kick against those. You know, C.S. Lewis is someone you guys know, I, I quote him quite a bit. I, I find his story fascinating. He was, for many, many years, he was an atheist. He was a professor of literature at, at Magdalen College at, at Oxford in England. And uh, when he came to faith in Christ, he, he wrote his, his autobiography. And, and throughout his life, he was aware of the presence of God convicting him and, and, and really just kind of goading him. And he, he often described this as a painful experience, so painful he hated it. He absolutely hated it. And, uh, and he refers to himself in his, in his autobiography as surprised by joy. And he would, like, when he came to Christ, he, he experienced joy and it totally surprised him. Let me let me share with you a quote uh, from C.S. Lewis, and this is, this is the story of his conversion. He says, he says quote, you, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him of whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. He said, that which I greatly feared had come upon me, 
In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and I prayed. And perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, in all of England drug into the kingdom, kicking and struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Do you, do you, see, you see what he's talking about here? He's talking about that this, this, he, he is so aware of the presence of God in his life, goading him and, and prodding him and convicting him, he didn't even want to face it. And he knew it was God, and he resisted him for years and for years. And C.S. Lewis goes on to describe how he, he gave in to Christ, and he experienced the joy that he was always looking for, that he never knew that he would find. Now, I share that with you, church, because I, I know that some of you right now, within the sound of my voice, whether you're watching online or even in this room, you're kicking against the goats today. You're actively resisting him. And I just want to tell you that God has allowed painful circumstances in your life, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. He's not paying you back. He's trying to bring you back. He's not trying to punish you. He's pursuing you. Because he loves you. And, and so it could be today that you're a Christian and you know that you've committed your life to God, but you're not walking with him. And you're resisting him. You've drifted far from him. And God has allowed some painful circumstances to come into your life. Or it could be that you're not even a believer and he's allowed circumstances to come into your life that are painful. It doesn't matter. Either way, don't resist him. It is God pursuing you. Here's sign number two. Not, not only does he pursues us, does, does he pursue us, but he, he opens our eyes. He, he opens our eyes. How do you know that the Spirit of God is working to convert you, to bring you into his family? The one way that you know is he opens your eyes so that you can see spiritually. And that's exactly what we, we see in this account and, and back in Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul loses his physical eyesight so that his spiritual eyes can be opened. And Ananias goes and prays for him and his physical eyesight is restored. But what we know from the rest of Acts and really from the letters of the Apostle Paul that his spiritual eyes were completely open. Now, here's what you have to understand, church. Spiritual blindness is a condition of someone who's not a Christian. When someone is not a Christian, they can't see spiritually. They're spiritually blind. Let me show this to you. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So Paul writes this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, the question is this. Who is the God of this world? Satan. And what, is, what does Satan do? He blinds the minds and hearts of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory and the greatness of God. Now, you know, when you kind of think about spiritual blindness, really there's just two types of spiritual blindness um, in the world today. And, and uh, the first type is just irreligious blindness, what you might call irreligious blindness. And this is this is really just blindness where we say, I don't really need God in my life. I'm just going to live and do my own thing. I, I've got my job. I've got my career. I've got my life planned out. I, I've got money. I, I've, I've got my help. I don't really need God. I want to be God. So I'm just going to call the shots. And what that's called is, that's called irreligious blindness. Because you see, you're not, you're not able to see 
the destructive fruit of that. You, you've rejected God, which is really the essence of sin, and saying that you don't need God in your life, and then you just live your life without God, and you wake up, and you've got a string of broken relationships in your life because you fried them, because you've been living for you. Or you're so blind to the love of God that you treat God, you view God as your enemy, not your friend. And it makes you miserable. And so you're blind to really where true joy comes from. You can't see where true joy comes from. So therefore, you're pursuing everything the world tells you to pursue in order to gain happiness and joy. And so you think, man, if I can just get a new spouse, if I can just get a new job, if I can just move to a new city, have a new career, then I'll be happy. And it all stems from saying, I don't need God in my life. I've got it all figured out. That's irreligious blindness. But there's another type of blindness, and that is religious blindness. And this is exactly where we see Saul. He has religious blindness. And this is blindness that basically says, I'm good enough to earn God's acceptance and love on my own. I don't need anything from God. I'm good enough in and of myself. And so I'm going to do more, and I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to be better. And then I know uh, if I keep the rules, then God will accept me in the end. That's called religious blindness. That's exactly where, where Paul is. Now, church, let's do a little theology this morning. All right, I want to do a little, I want to kind of dive into something uh, in the remaining time. And I want to dig this one out a little bit. When Adam and Eve sinned, two things happened. The consequences of their sin impacted and infiltrated all of us. And the first consequence of their sin is that our love for God was replaced with a love for self. So you and I have this propensity to make other things and other people ultimate in our life over our relationship with God. And so it's called idolatry. We have this propensity to turn anything into an idol whether it's a political party or a sports team or a relationship or whatever. And so we, we're, we're kind of like, um, our heart's like an idol-making factory, John Calvin would say. But there was a second thing that happened or a second consequence of sin that landed on all of us from our spiritual grandparents, Adam and Eve. And that is this. Now listen to me. We became aware of our nakedness. We became aware of our nakedness. Now, in reality, we were naked long before we sinned, but it wasn't a problem to us because we were clothed in the love and the acceptance of God. So we were naked long before the, long before the fall. But what happened with sin entering in the world is it disrupted our awareness of God's love and accepted for us. And, and, so, and so it disrupted this awareness and we began to feel guilt and shame over our nakedness. Now, what do normal, this is going to be, sound like a weird question, but stay with me. What do normal naked people do? When you realize you're exposed, what do you do? You cover up, right? If you were sleepwalking and you woke up buck naked in the middle of Target at 3 a.m., if you did that, 
what are you going to do? Are you going to grab a grocery cart and go strolling down, you know, the grocery aisle? Or are you going to go to the clothing department and get something on toot sweet? You guys know what I'm saying? We all know what we do. We're going to get clothes. And so, and so if you're normal, you're going to look for clothes. You're going to put on coverings. Here's the thing. Here's where I'm going with this church. We all have a sense of this nakedness. So what we do is we try to cover ourselves with our own good works. We try to cover our nakedness and our guilt and our shame through our own effort at good works and good deeds and working really hard to earn God's love and acceptance. And really what happens with our good works is they are done with a motive of self-justification. They're done really out of a motive of serving ourselves. Which is why Martin Luther said, not only do we have to repent of our evil deeds, but we have to repent of our evil good deeds as well. Because it's just our way of trying to pull ourselves up and show God we meet the standard. And that's at the heart of the deception that we think we could meet God's standard on our own without him. Church, listen to me. The message of the gospel is this. Not only did Jesus die for the penalty of our sin, but he lived so that we could be clothed with his love and acceptance and righteousness. So that means that we could be justified through Jesus Christ. We could be made right with God. That guilt and shame can be taken away because really of grace. And I think this is what Paul begins to see. He begins to have his eyes opened to the reality of God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense coming to us. And I think his eyes were opened. And I think when you experience the saving work of God in your life, your eyes are opened as well. And you, and you begin to see the wonder of God's grace. You begin to see that It's not, the attitude is not, of course God is going to accept me because I'm so good. Seeing God's grace is, I can't believe God loves me and accepts me. The wretch that I am. That's your eyes opening to the grace of God. I I think not only that, but, but, but Paul had his eyes open to God's acceptance, which made him transparent, which is why he could say in Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. If there's anything good in me, it's not because of me. It is simply because of the grace of God. That's why Paul could later say, I am the chief of sinners. Because he had this security in Christ. He had this transparency in Christ because he was aware of the love and the acceptance of Christ. And that only comes by grace through faith. And I think Paul had his eyes open to see that God is the hero of his story, not him. That Jesus is the hero of the story, not himself. You see, it's interesting that the name changed from Saul to Paul. It's interesting the meanings behind that. Saul means king. It it comes from one of the, the kings of Israel. But Paul means small. He went from thinking he's a king to realizing he's small. And he's okay with that. And you know what that is? That's having your eyes open to the truth. And so that's, that's the work that, that has happened in salvation. 
Sign number three, not only does God pursue us, not only does God open our eyes, but sign number three, God saves us. God saves us. Church, listen to me. Saul is a murderer. He is is filled with so much hatred and pride and anger. He never knew he was lost. He never knew he was an object of wrath. And so, and so this story of God saving Paul, this is not Paul on the road to Damascus thinking to himself, you know, I've kind of been overreacting a little bit. I need to kind of, I need to just tone it back. You know what I mean? Like, I just need to kind of, you know, I've been a little bit hot, a little bit heavy. I just need to kind of back off a little bit. This is not Paul coming to his senses. This is God working to sovereignly to save him. And I think what we see is that Paul's conversion absolutely scandalized Ananias and it scandalized the church because what was Ananias' response? Lord, there's no way. What you're telling me can't be true. This guy is too bad. He's a murderer. There's no way you can do this. And notice what Jesus had to tell Ananias in verse 15. He says this, But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And I think, church, the point is this, real grace is scandalous. It is an absolute scandal that God can take a murderer and forgive him. You know, John Newton is the author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, and uh, before John Newton became a Christian, he was a slave trader. And uh, John Newton writes about the fact that every time he saw a ship, whether it was a slave ship or not, any, just any ship, he was horrified and grieving over his own sin. And uh, he realized that he was a slave trader voluntarily, willingly, And he did it for money. He did it for money. And he committed his life to Christ. And he came to understand the grace of the gospel. And he came to understand these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. You see, Newton came to understand he didn't need a psychologist. He didn't need a doctor. He didn't need to self-actualize. He didn't need a boost in his self-esteem. What he needed was a savior. That's what he needed. Someone who would save him from the guilt and the shame of his sin. And that's exactly what happened. You see, there's two things that we struggle to believe about the gospel. Number one, that our sin is so bad that Jesus had to die for it. And number two, that Jesus loved us so much, he was glad to do it. We struggle believing those two things. That our sin is so bad that Jesus had to die and God loves us so much that he was glad to die. Which one do you struggle with the most? You see, God saving Saul reminds us that Jesus can save a murderer. That Jesus can save a slave trader. And Jesus can save you and me. Man, that is glorious. Here's the last one. God pursues us, God opens our eyes, God saves us, and then lastly, God commissions us. 
And I'll, uh, I'll end where I start. Church, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses of his grace and mercy. And so we've been called to, to tell about the good news, to tell about the, the grace of God. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. Verse 15, Jesus says, he is my chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, just let this sink in. The grace of God can take the greatest enemy of the church with blood on his hands and turn him into the greatest missionary, pastor, and church planner in church history. Only the grace of God can do that. And some of you, some of you push back because you say, you know what, God can never use me because of my sinful past. Because all the stuff in my past, all the bad things I've done, God can never use me. Friends, let me tell you, there's nothing further from the truth than what you just said. Because I'm here to tell you that the greater the sin is, the greater the usefulness. That God can take anything broken and put it back together and to use it for his glory and use it for his grace. So I just challenge you, church, you just got to tell your story. You got to tell the story of how God pursued you and opened your eyes and how God saved you and how God has commissioned you. You're not responsible for what people, how they respond to it, but you got to tell, you got to be a witness. We are all witnesses of his grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... We stand in awe of our salvation. We stand in awe of your amazing grace. Heavenly Father, just forgive us for thinking we're not, we're not that bad. Forgive us for doubting your great love. God, I pray that you would just remind us we don't even deserve to be here, to be alive, to be living and breathing that your mercies are new every morning and you give without finding fault. And so God, I just, I just pray that you would awaken us to the glory of your grace. Lord, that we would be witnesses. I just want to give an invitation. I'm going to just ask you to keep your eyes closed and your head bowed. And you may be watching this from your living room today, you may, be, you may be right here in the auditorium. And if you're not a Christian and you know God's been pursuing you and you've been resisting him, you know that God is speaking to you, God is convicting your heart. You need to come home. It's time to come home. It's time to step across the line and give your life to Christ. And it's so simple. You just admit that you need a, you need a savior. And you believe that Jesus is that Savior, that he died on the cross for you. And by faith, you just commit your life to him. And you just say, Jesus, I belong to you. And I'm following you. And so I just want to lead you in a prayer. If that's where you are today, just pray this prayer in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I need a Savior. I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for me. I want to come home and I commit my life to you. Save me so that I might serve you 
Forgive me so that I may walk closely with you. So that I could know you. And so, Lord, for every person who's prayed that prayer today, God, I pray that you would just confirm with your grace and your mercy your great salvation, your great glory. Lord, we love you today. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.